And let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, the psalmist said that he delights in your testimonies more than riches, that to meditate on your word and to fix our eyes on your word, it'll change and transform our lives. And Lord, we, we just want to be men and women who love you, who follow after you, who live for Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that um, as we spend this time with you, Lord, and your word, that your spirit would speak to us, we'd have ears to hear, Lord, that we'd have eyes to see, um, Lord, that we would grow in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus, that we would grow in our awe and wonder of the gospel this morning. And so, Lord, we just ask your blessing upon this time in your word. And all God's people said, amen. Cool. Okay, we're at the birth account of John the Baptist as we've been uh, getting going into uh, Luke. And Luke has got some pretty massive chapters, and I just haven't felt the need to rush here as we've got started. So we're in Luke chapter 1, verse 57, the birth account of John the Baptist. Um, when you think about John, I mean, we know this about John. John came preaching a message when he arrived on the scene, and the word of the Lord came to him, and he began to preach uh, to the nation of Israel. He preached a message that probably wouldn't be that popular in a lot of places today, you know, in our culture. He was a fiery preacher. We know that about John. He looked like a crazy man, dressed in camel's hair and eating locust. And he called the crowds to repent of their sin, to be baptized for the remission of their sins. But, the, you know, so when you think about John, you go, yeah, what a crazy message, what a crazy guy. But the truth is, nothing has changed with regards to the message of the gospel and the message of Christ Jesus. If you want Jesus... You have to come to him in the very way that John came preaching, preaching through the repentance of sin, the, good, the gospel of the good news of salvation and of forgiveness of sins involves the act of repentance from sin and turning in faith to the Lord Jesus. And so that was the message John came preaching, but before he ever began to preach that message, before his ministry began, what we have seen in the gospel of Luke is before the word of God came to John in the wilderness, uh, an angel appeared to his father, uh, the angel Gabriel, and announced that John this uh, would be conceived in his mother and that John would be a forerunner to the Messiah. You remember this, that Zechariah was on duty, working in the temple, offering prayers one day at the altar of incense when the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him about this miraculous birth that was going to happen uh, for Elizabeth. And Zechariah had not originally believed, initially believed the message of Gabriel. And so he was told, because of his unbelief, you are going to be silent. You're going to be, you're going to be mute, unable to speak until these words are fulfilled. So let's check this out. Verse 57 of chapter 1, it says this. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. I mean... This whole story is just miraculous. This birth is miraculous. I mean, the text tells us earlier that Elizabeth was barren. 
amazingly, she had become pregnant in her old age. And it was amazing for everyone who heard about this. I mean, imagine this, just an older woman carrying a child. I bet everybody was having conversations like, wow, is this baby going to go full term? You know, is it going to be early? What's going to happen? And strangely, like in the midst of everything, her husband had gone mute, couldn't speak. Maybe every wife's dream, I don't know. Um, and and there, were, there were strange, you know, stories and rumors surrounding this, his inability to speak, that, that there was an angelic visitation to him in the temple, and that this whole child and the story surrounding his, his birth was just miraculous. And I imagine that, yeah, like I said, there was chatter going on, you know, what's with What's with Zechariah? Do you think Elizabeth's going to go full term? Lots of small talk, lots of, lots of town gossip discussing the whole situation, and it was exciting and intriguing at the same time. So when Elizabeth gave birth to a healthy baby boy, everyone gathered to celebrate, the neighbors, the, the relatives, and the Lord received praise. They, they praised the Lord that he had had this incredible act of great mercy upon Elizabeth. And it was just exciting, you know? Like a coming of a baby is. Like, isn't that an exciting time? A pregnancy is exciting. It's like, you know, whenever you hear someone is pregnant, the first thing that you do is like, you congratulate them. You know, when the baby, yeah, when the baby comes, it's a congratulatory time, you know. That's the first thing we do. We say, wow, this is awesome. We're so happy for you. And everyone was sharing in Zechariah and Elizabeth's joy. It was an exciting time. Now, verse 59. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, as was the custom, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no. He shall be called John. Now, in, in this situation, like in that culture, a firstborn son traditionally would be called after his father's name. But Elizabeth catches everyone off guard. I mean, Zechariah's got nothing to say. Uh, <laughs> and she catches everybody off guard. She says, no, the boy is not to be named Zechariah. He is going to be named John. And John wasn't a family name, as we read, of course, the angel Gabriel told Zechariah the boy's name would be John. And John, remember this, we mentioned this our first week in this. The name John means Jehovah is a gracious giver. It's an awesome name for a, for a man and woman who had waited so many years for this child. And it's true. Jehovah is a gracious giver. The Lord is a, a gracious giver. He, he, he gives unmerited favor. His word says that, he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Yahweh is a gracious giver, and he was gracious to Zechariah and Elizabeth in their old age. And it wasn't, wasn't just graciousness of a, of a child being born, but this was a special child upon whom God had set his hand and upon whom the Spirit had filled. This child would announce the coming of the Christ. I mean, I mean, yes, Jehovah is a gracious giver, but Zechariah and Elizabeth and everyone, the relatives and all the neighbors, they really had no idea how gracious God was and what was going on here. Now check out verse 61. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. 
And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke blessing God. So in the midst of all this, they, they turned to Zechariah. What a great scene. He can't speak. In fact, I'll point out to you, he can't hear either. Do you catch that in this? He can't hear, which is a detail we often miss in the story of Zechariah. They couldn't just ask him. They had to do sign language, man. They were playing charades. Like, what are we going to name this child? And they tried to communicate with him what the child's name was. So Zechariah wasn't just mute. He was deaf as well. And Zechariah took the tablet and he wrote his name as John. Not his name will be John. He said his name is John because that was the name God had given the child. And it caught everyone by surprise. Especially because Zechariah couldn't hear the exchange that was going on between the neighbors and the relatives and Elizabeth about the discussion of the name. He, didn't, he couldn't hear what was happening. So when they handed him the, the tablet... To their surprise, he wrote down his name is John. And even more shocking to that, the scripture tells us that at that, mo at that moment, Zechariah's tongue was loosed. This is amazing. I mean, the man who had gone mute and deaf for more than nine months. I mean, who's ever heard of such a thing? Did this happen? This doesn't happen. Someone goes mute and can't speak for nine months and then all of a sudden your mouth opens and it works? Like this is... This is very miraculous, right? I mean, we get this. When someone is mute and deaf, it just, you know, you're reduced to using a writing tablet. You know, I remember when I was a kid, we used to go visit my great-grandma. She was deaf as a, couldn't hear a post, you know, nothing. It was like we would write things to her so that she knew what was going on. Uh, Zechariah has been using for nine months a tablet to, not, not an iPad, a piece of, you know, whatever, some chalk and a chalkboard, using a writing tablet to communicate for nine months, and in an instant, his speech and his hearing returns to him. I, I think, I love it. I love the picture because for nine months, Elizabeth has carried John. She's had a child in her womb, and for nine months, Zechariah has been, you know, deaf and dumb. A baby conceived in her, and what we're going to find out is there was something conceived in Zechariah as well. Because when he opened his mouth, praise came forth. Verse 65 says this, And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord is upon him? So how quickly, what's amazing as we read this is how quickly those who witnessed these things and heard about these things went from rejoicing, giving their congratulations to Elizabeth, to being filled, as we read here, with great fear. One moment, man, they're like celebrating a baby's birth and the next fear comes over them and fear comes, yeah, like the story of what happened just began to spread all over the place everywhere. News traveled. It traveled to the neighbors. It traveled from town to town. It traveled all throughout the Judean countryside. Everything, all the details surrounding the birth of this child, the account of the angel, the age of Elizabeth, you know, her barrenness, 
the strange circumstances around Zechariah's experience. And when people heard it, they were like, what is going on? So you can imagine. They had to wonder. They had to question in their hearts. What does all this mean? What will this child be? Like clearly God's hand is on this situation and news spread. Everyone was talking about it. And they were saying this, this kid is going to be something special. God's at work here. Now I'm super thankful that Luke wrote down for us the words of Zechariah that came next. His words of prophecy and praise that came from his lips. His, his words... I mean, it's like the song of Mary that's earlier in this chapter that we talked about a couple weeks ago. The words of Zechariah are drenched in Old Testament pictures and, and wording, just like the song of Mary. And I was thinking about that. You know, Zechariah couldn't speak for nine months. Probably had spent exorbitant and extended periods and times in God's word during those nine months. And something was conceived in him by the Holy Spirit. We read here that he was filled with the Spirit, and he spoke under the utterance of the Spirit, filled with the Holy Ghost, filled with the Spirit, and he spoke words of prophecy, not simply foretelling future things to come, but under the power of the Spirit, Zechariah began to make known the heart and mind of the Lord to all who heard him, to make known uh, the Lord's plans with regard to the present and the future. And he made known, he declared the praises of God and the heart of God to save. Now check it out. Let's read it. Verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear." in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Isn't that an incredible word of prophecy as Zechariah just breaks forth in song to the Lord? You know, first, Zechariah praises God for this. He gives the Lord tribute for his faithfulness to the house of David. David was the king of Israel a thousand years before this time. A thousand years before the birth of John the Baptist, kingship in Israel began. Remember this, First Samuel, not so long ago? Kingship in Israel began with the people of Israel coming to the prophet Samuel and saying, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations around us. Make us look like them. We want to be like everybody else. So they, they demanded a king, and the Lord instructed Samuel 
to give in to their demands. And the Lord said this, I'll give them a king who will meet their demands. And so the Lord gave them Saul. And they said, what a great choice. Look at this man. He's a king. And when they had had their fill of Saul, the king of their choosing, the Lord said, now how about I give you a king of my choosing? A man who has a heart after me, a man upon whom I have set my heart. And the Lord gave them King David. You know this, David loved the Lord. David was the greatest king Israel ever had. When it came to the kings of Israel, every king was weighed against David. He was the standard by which all others were judged. And God promised David, promised Israel that one day one of the descendants of David would reign over the house of Israel on his throne forever. And for a thousand years, the people would say this, if only we had a king like David. And in the fullness of time, God said this, okay, you're ready. The world is ready. The fullness of time has come, and I am going to give you another king like that, the son of David, the Messiah, the Savior, Christ, the Lord. And John would announce his coming. He would be from David's royal line. Zechariah praised God and he said this, you have raised up for us a horn of salvation. The horn of an animal is like a, it's like a symbol of that animal's strength, right? It's like an outward display of that animal's strength and courage. And this idea of a horn of salvation is like, the Lord has sent a mighty, valiant helper the author of deliverance, the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel, the King of Kings, the Son of David. The Son of David is like a title that is just, we know this, saturated in messianic expectation and hope. And the prophets of old had prophesied that the Messiah would save the people from their enemies. And so Zechariah, as he just, he goes on praising God. He praises God for their deliverance that they're going to have from their enemies. It's awesome. Freedom, he says, you know, in a sense. And it's true, you know, when God sets you, God sets you free. I mean, free, free from sin. But one of, one of the great misconceptions I would say about freedom is to think that when God sets you free, it's so that you can do as you see fit. Some see freedom. I mean, that's how freedom is often seen in our culture and our world, that it's like freedom is the ability to do whatever you want. Some use freedom for good. Some use freedom to practice evil. But when God sets you free from the enemy, he sets you free with a purpose. You have been set free, church, with a purpose from God. Not to do your own will. Not to begin... Uh, to again become enslaved to sin, not to offer your body as an instrument of sin. You have been set free with a purpose to serve God. And the freedom that Christ offers is a freedom that comes with incredible purpose, doesn't it, church? You know, let me ask you this. Like, what do you want to be free for? What do you want to be free for? To do whatever you want? Jesus can set you free from your enemies. Jesus can set you free from those who hate you. But what do you want to be free for? What do you want to use your freedom for? Free to do what? To do evil? 
Free to live for yourself? Jesus sets us free to live for him, to serve him. Jesus will set you free for that purpose, to live for him. He says, you don't have to offer your body to sin anymore. You can offer your body to me, and I will reveal my will to you, and you'll find out it's good, and it's pleasing, and it's perfect for you. Zechariah said, we're free from our enemies, and now we can serve God in holiness and righteousness. That's because when you serve sin, you're a slave to sin. Apart from Jesus, you can't, you can't live for holy, righteous things. You can't do what's right. You can't live a life set apart from God. In fact, our sin does that very thing. It separates us from God. We were slave, slaves to sin, and Christ set us free. Christ credited, credited to us His righteousness. Jesus imputed it to us His holiness. Jesus allows us to serve him without fear, without fear of the enemy. And Zechariah praised God. He said he sent the son of David to deliver us. And Zechariah praised God because God graciously gave him a son. The gracious giver, Yahweh, gave him a son because he is a gracious giver. And Zechariah praised God because he said, my son is going to play a part in all of this. My son is going to play a part in the coming of the Messiah. John would be the forerunner. You remember back to 2010 when we had the Olympics here in Vancouver? Wasn't that awesome? I, I, I love that time. It was so fun. Just, you know, during that time on Sundays, my family would leave church and we'd just get on a ferry and we'd just go hang out in downtown Vancouver uh, in the afternoon because it was just fun to walk around and be part of the Olympic spirit and and to celebrate, you know, life and competition and your nation and the world coming together. The Olympics were a blast. But do you remember what Highway 99 was like before the Olympics? You know that route from Squamish to Whistler, or even we could say from West Vancouver to Squamish all the way to Whistler? You remember what that was like? Remember the pushback when they were going to blast out all those bluffs in West Van? What were they called? Are the Eagles something? I can't even remember. I was trying to remember. Come on, somebody tell me. Weren't they called Eagle something? Eagle Ridge. Remember they were going to blast out Eagle Ridge and there was people all upset about that. They said, no, we're going to blast out these mountains. We're going to make a new section of highway. Lots of people were upset. But do you remember what that highway was like, like north of Squamish? I remember one of the first times I drove up there, man, I came across a car just shredded to pieces. Somebody had wiped out, and I didn't, I didn't think that they had even made it. I mean, people forget that was a twisting, two-lane, treacherous highway, but the Olympics were coming. And if my memory serves me correct, we spent about a billion dollars upgrading that highway, didn't we? Straighten the road, flatten that treacherous road, widen it, blast out the bluffs, move the mountain, all done before the Olympics, all done for the Olympics, because the world was coming. In ancient days, when a king was coming, a forerunner was sent ahead, and the job of the forerunner was to inspect all the highways and all the roads that the, kings, the king would be traveling, and he would ensure that the roads and the highways were in proper condition for the arrival of the king. That's what John's job was for the coming of King Jesus. 
But John wasn't putting highways in order, was he? John's job, the, the, the job that God gave him was a message. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it was to put human hearts in order for the coming of Jesus. The kingdom that the Messiah would bring was not about highways. It was about hearts. Jesus wasn't coming for a physical kingdom, but to establish a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men and women, and John was his forerunner. And John said, you have to prepare your heart. The king is coming. And the way that you prepare your heart is by repentance. He said this, you have to turn from your sin. The king is coming. Get your heart straight. He preached. There's wrath coming. And your life has to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He said, you are wrong if you think that you can ride the coattails of your fathers into the kingdom of heaven. He said, there's an axe, and it's coming to the root of the tree, and the tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down. And the crowd said to him, what should we do? He said, repent and be baptized and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Tax collectors came to him. They repented. John told them, you can't cheat people anymore. Soldiers came to him. They repented and were baptized. They said, I want my heart to be ready for the coming of the king. And John said to them, you can't use your power to abuse people anymore. You can't steal from people. John got hearts ready for the coming of the king. And his father knew that that's what he was called to do. At his birth, his father, Zechariah, opened his mouth after nine months of silence. And he praised God that his son was going to participate in the coming of this great deliverance. See, Zechariah knew this. That the greatest thing that can oppress a person, the greatest thing that can oppress a man or a woman is not a power on the outside. The worst oppression does not happen on the outside of you. The worst kind of oppression does not come from foreign powers or political powers like the Jews were experiencing, you know, the Romans oppressing the people of Israel. The greatest threat is not on the outside. The worst kind of oppression does not exist on the outside of you. The greatest oppression that you will ever experience comes from the power of sin and death in your own heart. And if you want to prepare people for real freedom, you have to talk to them about their sins. You have to tell them, those sins need forgiving. That sin is lawlessness. That sin is death. That sin you're participating in separates you from your God. And the greatest news that has ever been preached is this, that God forgives sins through his son, Jesus Christ. God forgives sin. He forgives sin and he sent his son to purchase us back from sin's oppressive power, to set us free from sin's deathly consequence. There is salvation through the forgiveness of sins. You know, religion doesn't offer that, right? Like no religion in the world can offer you that. No moral life can overcome sin's consequence, which is death. 
No amount of good works and striving can give you the assurance of your salvation. Only Jesus forgives sins, right? That's what we believe, church. Only Jesus. Only Jesus bore our sins on the cross. There is no forgiveness of sins outside of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no being set free from sin's oppressive power outside of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. His name, the Word of God tells us, is the only name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And the way to straighten your heart, and the way to be set free from sin's oppressive power, is to come to Christ in repentance and faith. The path that leads to eternal life, Jesus said, is very narrow, and wide is the way that leads to destruction. And Zechariah said, God in his mercy, in his tender mercy, he is going to dawn upon us and his presence is going to come like the rising of the sun. And those who are in darkness and in the shadow of death will be brought into the light and their feet will be set on a path of peace. Man, isn't the peace of Jesus an awesome thing? The way of peace, to have peace with God, have the peace of God fill your heart that comes from Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And it took nine months. But the Holy Spirit conceived in Zechariah here, you know, something awesome. And out of him, by the Spirit, overflowed words of blessing to the Lord. He said, my boy's going to be a forerunner for the Messiah. Now look at verse 80. It says this, and the child grew, became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Elizabeth and Zechariah, I imagine, you know, they were old when John was born. So they probably died when he was not too old, of a, a, probably a young man, you know. But they prepared him to serve the Lord. They taught him, God's hands upon your life, son. Man, you know, imagine bedtime stories in that house. An angel came to me. Yeah, mom's like, yeah, your dad couldn't talk for nine months. It was awesome, you know. <laughs> Whatever they did, you know. They said, God's hand is upon your life, John. And John lived in the wilderness until the word of the Lord came to him and his public ministry began. And Jesus, Jesus' ministry began at the age of 30. John was six months older than him. And so he, as a ministry of the forerunner, John, John was like somewhere in his late 20s, about 30 when the word of the Lord came to him. Turn, turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. This is going to be on your screen, but you, you got to go to Galatians chapter 4 with me, okay? we got Luke, Acts, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians. We put this stuff on the screen, but for years I, I, I resisted putting scripture on the screen for the very reason that I think you should bring your Bible to church every Sunday. <laughs> Shouldn't go anywhere without your sword. Okay, Galatians chapter 4. If you got a pen, you should mark this in your Bible. But it says this, verse 4. Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Paul said this, these things happened in the fullness of God's time at just the right time in all of history. Now let's read 
Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. The fullness of time. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And they were there. The time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Paul said this, it was the fullness of time. Which is amazing to just kind of think about that, to go, wow, you know. In all of history, this was the fullness of time in God's plan of salvation, you know. I mean, we know this, our calendar spins on this, right? Like on the birth of Jesus. It's like every time you write down a calendar date or make a reference to the year, you're referencing the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul said it was the, the fullness of time. I mean, it's like amazing to just think about what the world was like. I mean, politically, the Roman Empire had everything under its thumb. The world was settled under the control of the Roman Empire, and they had been free from war for more than a decade. It was a time of peace, you know, Pax Romana. Even if it was by the end of a sword, there was peace on the earth. There was Roman law, you know. People had citizenship and, and rights, and it was an awesome thing to be a Roman citizen and to be a member of that empire. And, and the Romans, in their ingenuity and engineering and just skill, had built a network of, of highways and roads that spanned their empire. Man, if they needed to move their armies, it was easy peasy. I mean, you go to the Middle East today and into different areas that was under the control of the Roman Empire, and you can walk today on the roads that these guys built. It's amazing. I mean, their kingdom was highly organized. I mean, the world was in a very unique place under Roman control. I mean, socially, socially it was really interesting. It was like everyone spoke one language in the Roman Empire. I mean, you had your dialects, and you had, uh, you know... Yeah, the Jews spoke Hebrew and, and all the different little languages there was, but there was a common language in the Roman Empire, Koine Greek. Everybody spoke it. It wasn't like, you know, fluent, just kind of like, you know, street slang. But everyone in the empire could speak that Greek language. And it was a suffering world. Like at that point in time, they say that... that in the Roman Empire, that there two out of three people were slaves. It's like hard for us to imagine, right? When we talk about slave, slavery in, in our world, but there was a lot, millions and millions of slaves. Like people were as wonderful as peace was and the sense of law, good roads, and common language. People were suffering. There was a lot of taxes too, <laughs> We kind of know that. You're like, wow, more taxes? That was like the Roman Empire, just more taxes all the time. And they would conscript the young men into their army. I mean, what's interesting is the Jews were actually exempt. Jewish young men were exempt because of their religious beliefs. 
from being conscripted into the army. But one of the reasons why Caesar called for this this, uh, census, which he would do, which would happen in the empire, I think every 14 years, was so that they could get a sense of the young men and they could conscript them into their Roman army. And then it was so they could just tax everything that moved, right? I mean, it was like awesome living in that empire, but you're going to pay taxes. And it was like in that time, like it was a morally sick world too. Like you know that. They say that like 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors, the Caesars, were homosexuals. They were involved. There was lots of pedophilia in that culture. It was a, a, a sexually corrupt culture. The, religiously, it was like messed up. Nobody knew why they existed. They just said, hey, you know, just whatever you want, do it in your body. You know, Greek philosophy and religion had left people without any sense of, you know, meaning or value in life. They were preoccupied with death, like our culture. We have a a culture totally preoccupied with death. They were tired of worshiping you know, the Greek gods who came to them in forms of human beings and had lots of weaknesses. And so in the pantheon of Roman and Greek gods, they were just, yeah, you know, they were just like human beings given divine attributes. And what had happened was they'd begun to deify the state and the Caesar. You know, the confession was happening. Caesar is Lord. For 400 years, Israel had had total silence from God. Hadn't heard from heaven. You kind of wonder, well, you know, why hadn't God sent the Messiah already? But it's like the world wasn't ready and Israel wasn't ready. It was like the fullness of time had to come and then the Father would send his Son. Between 400 BC and the birth of Jesus, most of the Jews had actually moved out of the land of Israel. There were 4.5 million Jews spread throughout the Roman Empire that did not live in the Promised Land. 80,000 in the city of Rome. There was a million Jews in Alexandria, in Egypt. And it was like God had taken his people, you know, the Jews had always like stayed in their land, held to their culture, you know, kept separate from the world. And God had spread them all over the known world to use them as agents of the gospel when the Messiah would come. When they had returned from Babylonian exile, only 50,000 had come back to the land of Israel. Like I said, you got 80,000 Jews living in Rome. In Alexandria and Egypt, the Jews became so fluent with their Greek language, they began to forget the Hebrew, and so their, their scholars took the Old Testament and translated it from Hebrew into Greek, which is called the Septuagint. If you ever hear of that, that's the first translation of the Old Testament from its original language from Hebrew into the language of Greek so that the Jews in Alexandria could still understand the Word of God. But the amazing thing was the whole empire could now read the Word of God. If you were an Italian in Rome or a Greek in Athens, now you could read the Old Testament even if you didn't know Hebrew. Greek was the language of the empire. The word of God was ready for the common person. Isn't that awesome? The world had come to Israel because 
Israel, the land of Israel is the land bridge that connects Asia and Europe and Africa. I mean, we know this. Every major empire that ever ruled that area had to conquer the land of Israel, had to travel through the land of Israel. So it's very metropolitan, lots of nations. I mean, we know this about the ministry of Jesus. His ministry was centered in the Galilee, which was called the Galilee of the Gentiles. We read about it in the New Testament. It has the name, the Decapolis, the ten cities. I remember when we were in Jordan in 2016, we went to one of the cities of the Decapolis, and I'm like, my mind was blown at how big that community was. Galilee was ruled by three different leaders at this time. You had Philip, you had Herod, and you had the Greeks in control. It was divided up into little province states. You know, it's like every time Jesus got in a boat, you read this in your, your, your New Testament and you read in the Gospels, every time he gets in a boat, he's going into a different province in a sense, you know. It's like getting away from the Jews over here and ending up with the Gentiles on the other side over there, having an encounter with somebody over there. So by the time Jesus was born, I mean, what I'm telling you is this, is Jews were scattered all around the known world. Gentiles were scattered, scattered all over the land of Israel. There was highways and common speech and language. The Jews being spread all over the world were ready with all of the prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, and they had the language of the common people. They could preach the gospel Remember on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2? Thousands of people, tens of thousands, have come to the city of Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And it was on that day, that uh, 50 days after the resurrection of, or the ascension of Jesus, that uh, the Holy Spirit was poured out and 120 followers of Jesus were filled with the Spirit, and they began to declare the glories and praise of God in other languages. And those who were there that had come from Alexandria and Rome and Athens and Caesarea and Syria and Damascus and all of the places, they said, what is it with these Jews? They're declaring the praises of God in the tongues of the Syrians, in the tongues of the Romans, in the speech of the Egyptians, in the language of Alexandria. They must be drunk, but they are declaring the praises of God. And Peter got up and he preached, and 3,000 were saved, right? They were all Jews who had come from all over the world for the celebration of Pentecost, and they were men and women who knew the prophecies of the Messiah. And they went back, and they preached the gospel. And Alexandria, Rome, and Paul chased them to Damascus to persecute them. The gospel spread. Church, it was the fullness of time and the plan of God. And there was a forerunner. And he said this. You got to get your heart ready. The king is coming. And our hearts have to be ready too. Would you stand with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Let's pray.
Jesus, this morning, we acknowledge before you and before the Father in heaven that there is only one name given to men by which they must be saved. There is only one man, the God-man, who can set us free from sin's power and consequence. Jesus, you're our desire. We pray that you would have our hearts this morning. Jesus, forgive us our sins. Jesus, purify us from all unrighteousness. Jesus, would you give us your righteousness and your holiness? Jesus, would you fill us with your spirit? Jesus, would you cause our lives to bring forth fruit for your kingdom? Jesus, we pray that our hearts would be ready for your coming. Lord, get our hearts ready. We pray, Lord, we wouldn't wait that we wouldn't put it off, but that you'd have our hearts fully and completely. In Jesus' name, amen.